0: Father, we lift now our hearts up to you to ask that you would speak to us through your word, the message from your word this morning. We ask, Father, that your word, as you have promised, would not return unto you void, but that it would accomplish the very purposes for which you have sent it forth for each one of us individually this morning. Everyone has their own particular needs and concerns, and we just pray that your spirit would would minister to every single person. May there be something each lady can take home with her today that she can use to make herself more Christ-like and more fruitful for your kingdom and your glory. And now, Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight. And we pray in the saving name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you remember back to our lesson two weeks ago, the Lord Jesus, or was it three weeks ago? The Lord had departed from Jerusalem for the last time before his final journey there, which would be in the spring of the year. He had been in Jerusalem to celebrate the feast of dedication. It was winter. That feast is also known as Hanukkah all right and the next time he would be going to jerusalem would be in the spring of the year when he would not only attend the passover feast but he himself would willingly lay down his life to be the passover lamb the sin substitute for mankind he had um had when he was in Jerusalem for the Feast of Hanukkah, he had yet another futile dialogue with Israel's religious rulers, which, of course, ended with them accusing him of blasphemy. You know, they had already experienced a man like Antiochus Epiphany, so they were on alert. And when someone came along and said they were God-manifest, they accused him of blasphemy, not realizing that he truly was speaking the truth. He was God-manifest. And remember, they picked up stones, they encircled him, picked He picked up stones and they were going to stone him to death, but then as he always did, he amazingly passed through the midst of them. And where did he go? He departed from Jerusalem and Judea to go beyond the Jordan River into the area of Perea. And that we read about in John 10, verse 40, and we mentioned how interesting it was that we find Jesus ending his public ministry in the same area where he had begun his ministry. Remember after his 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness being tempted by Satan, when he departed from the wilderness, he had gone to the area of Perea beyond the Jordan and John the Baptist had baptized him. So his ministry began and ended in this area of Perea. And it was in this area, which of course had the advantage of being further from the prejudiced influence of the ruling Sanhedrin in Jerusalem, and which had been spiritually prepared not only by John the Baptist, but also by the Lord's 70 disciples, that the Lord Jesus found his greatest acceptance amazing wasn't it and Perea was largely Gentile which was sort of a foreshadowing of things to come you know that he would be accepted more by Gentiles more Gentiles make up the church than Jews although the church consists of both but anyway he had found great acceptance by the people there in Perea and it was good for us to have finished the great tenth chapter of John's Gospel which I hope from now on whenever you hear John chapter 10 mention automatically you will think of the Good Shepherd Sermon. It was great that the Good Shepherd Sermon ended on a happy note. It told us that the people resorted unto him. they And they said that everything John the Baptist had spoken about Christ was true. And we were told that many believed on him there. And that resulted in the Lord rejoicing in his spirit for the one and only time that it says in Scripture he rejoiced in his spirit. So we ended on a happy note. Now, in this first lesson of our Life of Christ 5 book, we go back to the second half of Luke chapter 13 where we had broken off in verse 21 to complete the second half of John 10 really confusing we're in John 10 we went through half of the chapter then we went over into Luke and we stopped in the middle of Luke 13 so that we could go back and finish the second half of chapter 10 of John and now we're going back to the second half of Luke 13 to finish it I am so glad that people smarter than me put together a harmony of the Gospels because I don't think I could ever do it. But great scholars took the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, studied them, studied them, studied them, and tried to put to the best of their ability the Lord's life in chronological order and doing that is called a harmony they harmonize the gospel now they can't be dogmatic about every single this is what he did first, this is what he did second da 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 da, but to the best of their abilities they have laid out his life chronologically for us and I am using the one that most scholars say is the very best ever written and it's a harmony by Dr. A.T. Robertson, a lot of you have probably heard of him, his and Dr. Dwight Pentecost agree almost, they're almost 99% in agreement, so i feel pretty confident with what we're doing chronologically here but i'm just so glad somebody else did this work because i would never have figured it out you know (laughs) i don't think any of us would have but um anyway so we're going to be in luke now you can look ahead in your books and you'll see that for the next few weeks we're going to be in luke's account luke's gospel and we'll be there until we get to the middle of luke 17 and then we'll go back to john's gospel And we'll be in the 11th chapter of John's gospel. Now, how many of you know what John chapter 11 is all about? The resurrection of Lazarus. So, and that's just in a few weeks. I I don't know what lesson it is. It's 109 or 110 or something like that. But we'll be there very shortly at the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead. And that should tell you how close to the end of the Lord's life we are. Because... When he raised Lazarus from the dead, it was only a few weeks before his own crucifixion. And so we're getting very, very close to the end of the Lord's life. Now, that would also make you think that we're getting close to the end of our life of Christ study, right? Wrong. (laughs) We just finished the fourth volume in our life of Christ study, did we not? How many more volumes have we got? Four. So we're exactly at the halfway mark. If you, it's amazing. But if you took the four Gospels uh, and put them together, do you realize that half of the Gospel contents are with regard to the Lord's last week of life? His Passion Week. So what does that tell us? It tells us that the emphasis of his whole life was on his death. He was born to die. So we're only halfway there. But we're getting very close to the Passion Week. All right, today's lesson is on Luke 13, verses 22 to 35. It's entitled Lost Opportunities. You know we all, sad to say, but we all miss out on some opportunities of life. Many, probably, opportunities of life. I don't know if in heaven the Lord is going to show us all the opportunities that we missed out on. I hope not because, you know, it does say there's no tears in heaven. And if I found out all the opportunities I missed, I know I would cry for the rest of eternity. But we all miss out on many, many opportunities. Opportunities to witness to somebody, and we don't. Opportunities to invite somebody to Bible study, and we don't. Opportunities to do right. And we don't, we do wrong. Opportunities to do good for somebody and we let that opportunity pass. Or opportunity to um, avoid trouble. (laughs) And we don't, we walk right into the middle of it. Or um, you can think of all kinds of opportunities. You know, opportunity to further your education. You had an opportunity to do it, you let that pass and then you had children and it became impossible, you know, or whatever. Opportunity to change a job opportunity you could fill in the blank but the 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 worst opportunity of all to miss for all time and eternity is to miss out on spiritual salvation would you agree with that absolutely to let the lord jesus christ who is no matter what the world says and how intolerable they think we are for saying this but to miss out on the one and only savior the Lord Jesus Christ, there is only one way to heaven, and he is the way. No man cometh to the Father but by him, to to let him pass our way and either ignore or reject him. That is the worst missed opportunity that there possibly can be. Period. End of sentence. In this lesson, we're going to look at three entities. One was a nation, one was what we could call a king, or he's really a tetrarch, Herod Antipas, and one was a city, the city of Jerusalem, each of which tragically missed their moments of opportunity to receive through faith in Jesus Christ, God's Son, the kingdom of heaven. In the first verses, we're going to look at Israel's missed opportunity. And then we're going to look in verses 31 to 33 at Herod's missed opportunity. And last of all, at Jerusalem, the holy city's missed opportunity. So let's begin by looking at Israel's missed opportunity. And for this, we'll look at verses 22 to 30. It says in Luke 13, and he, Jesus, went through the cities and villages. And if you want to write in there of Perea teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the strait gate. For many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in and shall not be able. When once the master of the house is risen up and hath shut to the door and ye begin to stand without and to knock at the door saying, Lord, Lord, open unto us and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not whence ye are. Then shall ye begin to say, we have eaten and drunk in thy presence and thou hast taught in our streets. But he shall say, I tell you, I know you not whence ye are. Depart from me. All ye workers of iniquity, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out and they shall come from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south and shall sit down in the kingdom of God and behold, there are last which shall be first and there are first which shall be last. Jesus is journeying toward Jerusalem. And did you realize that his journey toward Jerusalem for the last time, for, you know, the Passover, that his last journey to Jerusalem took place in three stages? The first stage was back in Luke 9:51, when we read that he left Galilee for the last time and he steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem, you know, like Flint. He went to Jerusalem, he passed through Samaria. James and John wanted to, you know, send fire down on some Samaritans. But when he got to Jerusalem, that first stage, it was in order to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. That's when they set up all the booths. And it was an eight-day feast, and it was at that time that he had declared himself to be the source of living water. He had also said that he was the light of the world, and he had even gone so far as to declare himself to be the great I am. Remember when he said before Abraham was? I am. Now... After some time in the area of Perea, of course, he had left Jerusalem after the Feast of Tabernacles, and he had sent his 70 out, and then he himself had kind of gone into the... uh, Well, he was in Judea for a while, and then he worked his way over into Perea. And he's been in Perea for probably at least a month and a half or so, and now we read of his second stage of his final journey to Jerusalem. And this is in uh, verse 22 here. He went through the cities and villages. That's of Perea teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. He's, He's traveling toward Jerusalem, but he's on a time schedule and he can't get there too soon. He has to get there at the time of the Passover celebration, which is in the spring of the year. So as he's traveling, he's going at a slow pace, a slow but steady pace. And everywhere he goes on his way, he is doing what he always did. He's teaching. He's teaching, and I'm sure he's probably healing and performing miracles, although it doesn't say that. He continued to do exactly what God had sent him to do. He did not grow weary in well doing, he did not slack off or forget his call and his mission whether we are told he was in a large city or whether he was in a small village it didn't make any difference to him he taught the word of god in season and out of season to anybody who was willing to stop and listen he gave a special opportunity to everyone he came into contact with to receive his words and to receive his kingdom to receive him Well, somewhere along the way, I don't know exactly where because we're not told, but an individual approached him with a question. The question was, Lord, are there few that be saved? Now, this person who was probably a man was not asking how he himself might be saved, which we've seen. Certain people have come to him and say, you know, how can I know that I'm saved or how can I receive eternal life? This man doesn't ask that question. He asks rather if those who are saved will be many in number or whether they will be few in number. He was probably he, he possibly. Was asking out of curiosity because this was a question and debate that the Jewish people like to ask themselves. You know, they love to debate about every issue that there was. And this was one of those issues that they love to debate about whether there would be many in the kingdom. Now, um, in light of his response, the Lord's response to this question, which focuses primarily... You'll notice what I read, you know, about um, Abraham and Isaac and the prophets. And yet you yourselves will be thrust out. Many will come from the east. He's really, his answer is to the Jewish people. And his answer is really to the nation of Israel. So in light of that, the man's question really was basically, um, Lord, when the messianic kingdom comes, will only a few people enter into it? Now, he may have asked this question because he knew that Jesus, by and large, was being rejected everywhere he went. You know, he'd been rejected in Galilee. He was rejected by the religious leaders. That was the most important of all to the Jewish people. And he had been uh, rejected by and large in the southern province of Judea. And so maybe this person, I don't know, maybe this was even one of the Lord's own disciples. We just aren't told. But he wondered if there maybe would be any success at all to his ministry after such rejection on the other hand the one who asked the question may have been anxious about his own spiritual condition i I just don't know we don't know what was going on in this man's heart but at any rate it seems to have been a legitimate question one thing i can say is it doesn't seem to be a question to, to try to ensnare jesus which was different because so many people who have come to him and asked him questions just wanted to trap him this man really seems to want to know what the answer is. And it's a good question. What would you all answer to that question if it's asked of you? Are there few that are saved or many? What would you say? Few, all the ladies yesterday said the same answer. And I guess we get that from over in the Sermon on the Mount, when the Lord Jesus in Matthew 7:13 and 14 said, Wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat. Many are on the broad road that leads to destruction. And he went on to say, Because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. So that sounds like, yes, there's few that find the narrow way. Many on the broad way to, to death and destruction and eternal hell. Few that find life through the one way, Jesus Christ. Also in Matthew seven twenty two, which you really find kind of a parallel passage here. When I read, you know, that many will say, Lord, Lord, open unto us and he shall answer and say unto you, I know you not. Remember back in the Sermon on the Mount, it says that... Um, Many will say unto him at that day, which of course is as they stand before the Lord at the great white throne judgment, they'll say, Lord, Lord, you know, didn't I do this and didn't I do that for you? And then he will profess unto them, I never knew you, depart from me ye that work iniquity and that is just speaking of many professing christians i mean the many who stand before him that day will say lord lord you know i was in your your quote unquote christian church i did this for you in the name of jesus and i did that for you in the name of jesus those are professing christians and they're going to be many isn't that going to be the saddest day ever the saddest day ever when professing christians will stand before him and he'll say, I never had a personal relationship with you. You never accepted me. You know, it was just all up here, not down here. But that that's going to be many, but that doesn't even include all the people in other religions who don't even profess Christ. It's not going to include all the agnostics and the atheists and all the just totally secular people. So, yes, there will be many unsaved and in relative to that there's only a few who will be saved we have um remember the the parable of the four seed the the four soil types in matthew 13 we had uh first of all there was the um now the, the seed was the word of god and as the seed is sown it lands on different types of soil soil type hearts one soil type part is the hard uh, wayside ground. You know, the hardened ground along the, the pathways where the, the seed is sown and it just lands on the top. The ground is so hard, seed doesn't penetrate. So birds come along and take up the seed. Hasn't, it doesn't even take root or anything. It just lays there and then it's gone. And then there was the other soil type, which was uh, shallow stony ground. The, the soil was so thin you know because there was a, a layer of rock underneath that the, the seed even though it initially had a little bit of a root it hit that stone underneath so there was no deep root structure and when the sun came out you know when persecution and the hard times come what happened to that little budding plant it withered away and then the third type of heart soil was that of uh, thorny ground the seed seed was in the ground but there were so many thorns and weeds that choked it out that it just died and that's what happens to so many people they hear the gospel it looks like they accept it but then the concerns and the worries and the cares and the pleasures of this life choke it out so out of four soil type hearts there was only one that was good you know good rich soil where the, the seed took root and, you know, grew and and produced fruit. So that would tell us also that there's few that be saved. And yet, out of that one soil type, it says that they produce a hundredfold, sixtyfold, and thirtyfold. See, I'm going back and forth on this. This is one of those things where you could just go back and forth and speculate. But didn't Jesus say that in his father's house there are many mansions? And he said in a par- the parallel account here we see in verse 29 he says and they shall come from the east and the west but over in Luke 8 he said many shall come from the east and the west and the north and the south speaking of many Gentiles and when we read the book of Revelation we find out that many souls of the righteous will be in heaven and wasn't it wonderful to hear on that DVD last time that many Muslims are even coming to faith in Jesus Christ I mean that excites me I'm so glad so There will be many, many multitudes of people saved, but relative to those who are lost, it will be few. So really the answer is few. But the Lord Jesus, we notice, didn't answer the man's question. He answered the man, but he didn't answer the man's question. He didn't just come right out and say, yes, few will be saved or no, many will be saved. Instead, just as he had done at the beginning of this chapter, if you can remember back, if you can't, you can look at verse 1, when he had been told about some Galileans who had been murdered by Pilate and their blood had actually been mingled with the blood of their sacrifices. Remember when he answered those people who told him about that as if he didn't know. They were trying to get him to say uh, they were murdered because they were terrible sinners. They were worse sinners than the rest of us. But he didn't address that. He rather made the whole issue personal. Don't worry about those Galileans who were murdered, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And that's exactly what he does here. He doesn't answer the man's question, but he makes it personal. And he doesn't just make it personal to the man who asked the question. Notice it says uh, at the end of verse 23, And he said unto them... He didn't just speak to the man. He spoke to everyone who was standing around listening. And um, the big question he went on, in effect, to answer. The big question is not how many will be saved, but will you be among them? Whether that number is many or few, will you be one of the number who is saved? And... uh, That's the most important question. He says, you know, basically get that question settled first. And then if you want to, you can spend the rest of your life speculating about whether there will be many or few, you know, but really that's not, not, that's not the big issue. Then you should spend, you know, once you have it nailed down that you are part of the few or the many who will be saved, that you will enter into the kingdom of heaven because of your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and your acceptance of him, really then you should spend the rest of your life trying to get that number increased, whatever it's going to be, by witnessing to others. And um, telling them how they can enter into the kingdom of heaven. You and I don't need to spend a whole lot of time and energy dealing with issues that take us into the realm of speculation. Although I'm guilty of this. You all know that. I just sometimes get carried away trying to speculate this and that. But we don't need to spend a lot of time there. You know, there is no way that we can ever take all of the scripture and put it into neat little boxes and categorize it and then tuck it away in file drawers is there There, there's just there's just now that's not to say that there aren't certain truths and certain teachings and doctrines doctrines that we do need to be sure about and that we can nail down and categorize and put in file boxes and know and count on them as being sure but we can't do that with everything can we i mean there's just some things that at this point in time we don't know only god knows But what we do know is that will not the judge of all the earth do that which is right? We can rest in knowing that he's going to do what's right with those questions that we don't always have answers to. Now, one day we'll know those answers. But right now, we have enough to learn about just in what we do have, don't we? I mean, if it's going to take us eight years just to study four Gospels, you could easily spend six, ten lifetimes or more trying to study this whole book right so we have enough to do just in learning what we are told and we don't have to you know spend a lot of time speculating about the rest of it whether there's few or many but I do think it's going to be few relative to the many but it's still going to be many (laughs) now what did Jesus say to this individual and unto all who were listening to him well he gave a command isn't that interesting he answered a question he usually answered a question with a question or a command and here he gives a command. And it's the same one we saw back in Matthew seven thirteen, where he said, Strive to enter in at the straight gate. The way to salvation is straight and narrow. Isn't it? It's just like this aisle here. It's very straight and it's very narrow. Truth is like that. People in the world don't realize that. They think truth should be broad. You know, but when they go to school and they learn arithmetic, that's what we old people call math, <laughs> Two plus two, the only right answer is four. You know, truth is not broad. It's narrow. It's only one right answer. It's four. It's not six. It's not eight. It's not a thousand. So there's a, the only way to salvation is straight and narrow. It's not crooked in direction. It's not crooked in purpose. It's not crooked in morals. And it's not crooked in its source. There's only one mediator between God and man, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ, just one way. Now, the word strive, we've talked about this before, comes from the Greek word for agonize, agonizomet agonize it means to exert absolutely the fullest force that we have it was used of athletes who were contending in the Olympics the Olympic events now if some athlete has made it all the way to the Olympics you know that he is is striving striving agonizing he gets up first thing and i've heard some of them get up like four, three, four in the morning and they start working out and they they just practice practice work out work out you know and and they just agonize so that they can win either the gold or the silver or the bronze medal it's also it also was a word that was used for somebody who was wrongly accused of murder now if you were accused of murdering somebody and you knew you were innocent what would you do you would strive to prove yourself innocent. You would hire the best lawyer there was. You, I mean, you would spend every last penny you had. You would, to your fullest energy level, you would do everything that you could to get yourself you know, out from under that accusation. So that's, what, that's where the word comes from. Um, he's saying, don't rest. Don't rest until you know that your salvation is a sure thing. You know, we pray for people we don't know whether they're saved or not. Lord, don't give them any rest at all. Don't give them any false comfort, any false security. Don't give them any peace until they know for sure that they have this ultimate issue settled. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness. The kingdom of heaven is so vital an issue that a person should exert all of his strength, all of his energy, all of his effort, all of his focus to, to surmount any obstacle that gets in his way. And that obstacle might be family. It might be... Our worst enemies, the world, Satan, our own flesh is a great obstacle to overcome because we don't like to die to self, take up our cross and follow one like Jesus. But we should. We should strive to do all we can to make sure we truly are through that narrow gate. You know, going through the narrow gate is not really easy. Now, it's free. There's no charge. But it's like, I think I've told you this before. I think of a turnstile. You know, when you go through... Uh, We used to have a a Kmart when I was growing up. I think it was a Kmart or one of those kind of stores where you had to go in through a turnstile. I think to go to Disneyland or some places you have to go through turnstiles to make sure you have your ticket and everything. But going through one is not easy. Of course you can only go through one at a time also. You know somebody else can't drag you along just because your parents are Christians doesn't mean you are. But to go through a turnstile like that, a narrow gate you can't carry a whole lot of extra baggage with you. You can't carry a big bulky purse and and suitcases and all kinds of luggage because you just won't fit. In other words to go through the narrow gate you have to leave behind some Luggage, baggage like pride and uh, self-will and the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life, all those kind of bad baggage, which is better for us to leave behind anyway. So it's, it's difficult. It's difficult. Being on the broad road is easy. Isn't it? Because you can take all that baggage. The, the road is very, very, very broad. Everybody can fit with all the baggage they want. You can fulfill all the lusts of, the, of life, you know, have all your pleasures met. As you walk along, you'll have all kinds of companions with you, people to talk to, and the narrow gate, you know, few of us. Sometimes it gets kind of lonely. Sometimes you have to leave the family behind and all that sort of thing. But broad, Broadway is a um, much easier way to walk. But it leads to destruction. My girls and my grandchildren, um, there's just the three females and our three grandchildren, we were at a a mall this past weekend. Now, I am getting to the age where I hate to shop. I used to like to shop. Now I hate to shop. I don't even like to grocery shop. I don't like to shop for clothes. I, I just don't like shopping anymore. So I have not been in a mall in a long time. This mall was in Myrtle Beach. I was like... I thought I was at the zoo. I i mean, I cannot believe what's happening to people. I just can't believe it. The hairdos and the... I'm sorry if I offend anybody, but the tattoos from the head to toe and the hair colors and the weirdos and the open homosexuality. And I just saw everything. And I said, girls, we got to get these little guys out of here. This is pornographic it's awful and this isn't even summer you know when it's summer then they take all the clothes off <laughs> Whew. oh no broad road seems to be getting broader mm. <laughs> uh, however there's come, the Lord's warning here is that there is coming a day when many will seek to enter through the door of salvation but bad news is that it will be too late they shall not be able, it says in verse 24. Their day of opportunity will be past. Remember how Jesus answered those who told him about the murdered Galileans? What did he say? Main thing is except ye repent, ye shall all perish likewise. Notice the key words in verse 24. He said, will seek. Many will seek. To enter in and shall not be able. The person who strives now, today, today is the day of grace. Today is the the day of salvation. Anyone who's striving now can enter into the kingdom of heaven. See, the words are given in the future tense. Um, Right now, salvation is a possibility. Because now is the accepted time. Don't ever put it off. Uh, You know, thinking, well, I'll do that when I'm old and I've had all my fun. (laughs) Don't put it off. Today is the accepted day of salvation. You don't know if you have tomorrow. Uh, The seriousness is that there is coming a time in every person's life when their opportunity to enter into God's kingdom will be withdrawn. The opportunity to enter through the door Who is the door? Remember John 10 is not only the good shepherd chapter, chapter What's the door chapter Because he said I am the door by me If any man enter in he shall have salvation But there's coming a time when the door is going to be shut Remember Noah's Ark? God is so long suffering I can't believe that he gave people 120 years of Noah's great preaching You know repent repent judgment is coming Oh yeah ha ha what a nut you are and they didn't listen, and yet one day, God shut the door. Noah and his family were in. He didn't shut the door. He said, God shut the door. And then, don't you know what an awful scene it must have been as the heavens opened up and the rain came down and the springs underneath the ground just thrust forward and uh, the water started rising and rising and the people were screaming and knocking and banging on, on, on Noah's ark and Noah couldn't do anything about it he couldn't open it God had closed it it was closed judgment was here that's the same thing that's going to happen in the end times there's a day of the day of opportunity will one day be passed God is long suffering I have no idea why he has been so long suffering with all the rebellion of mankind over all these years ever since the beginning man has rebelled against him and when I see the rebellion in the world today against him I don't know why he keeps waiting but there is a limit to his long suffering and the reason for that is because God is a holy God and a holy God must punish sin right i wouldn't want a god who didn't punish sin because that would mean he was just a ho ho benign old santa claus in the sky and you know everybody could get away with everything sin needs to be punished because he's holy and so there is coming a day when when that door will be shut remember back in noah's day God said, "My spirit will not always, what, strive with man." Same word as agonize or strive to enter in into the the uh, narrow gate. Nobody can ever accuse God of not. Um, Giving his all, you know, not it's he he has agonized over man and trying to get man to listen to him. The Holy Spirit of God, however, will not always agonize, give his utmost, his all, his totally concentrated concern and effort in every way conceivable conceivable to get men to repent. There is a limit to his long suffering, um, to his long suffering. You know it's interesting. I thought about how God how God Jesus told us to strive to enter in because it's such an important issue. He God the Father, God the Spirit has striven with man. Is that a word striven? Have strove, strived, have strived. I don't know. What is it? Joan? She doesn't even know. <laughs> Today I strive. Let's see. Today I strive, yesterday I strove. Shall have striven anyway whatever it is he agonized (laughs) but um he he agonized with man you know he not he will not always agonize with man we are told to agonize to enter into the straight gate and there was one other time that word is used and it was when jesus was in the garden of gethsemane and he agonized you know that's where he really won the victory You know, he said, oh, Lord, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. He knew he was going to the cross uh, the next day. And um, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done. And he agonized, he strived so much that he actually sweat blood. Drops of blood came out of his body. So that that tells us those three places where it's used tells us how important this issue of getting into the kingdom of heaven is god the father gave his all god the holy spirit gives his all because his work is to convict men of their sin and god the son gave his all so we of course are to give our all All right. Even though the Lord's words of Luke 13, verses 25 to 30, primarily have their focus on the Jewish people and, of course, on the nation of Israel, whose time was getting very short. They didn't know that, but their time was getting very, very short. We may be down to even like within a month or so of his crucifixion. So even though he primarily spoke to Israel and the Jewish people, yet, of course, everything the Lord says we can take personally and apply to ourselves as well. Notice how it is that many will offer the Lord a plea of familiarity with him, which is a false sense of security. Israel, you know, will say as she stands before the Jewish people that had him in their midst. Many of them will stand before him one day and say, "Lord, Lord, we knew you. You walked among us. We even invited you to dinner. You know, we had meals with you. You taught in our streets." They're they're giving the plea of familiarity. You know, you were Jewish. We're Jewish. And, and that's a false sense of security because the bottom line is even though they had enjoyed his fellowship for some 33 years, they didn't by and large submit to him as Lord and King, as Savior and Messiah. And, um, and, and therefore, Israel sadly missed her moment of opportunity. She had been given, among all nations of the world, a very, very, very special opportunity, right? She's going to be held much more accountable. And just think of what she has had to go through because she missed her moment of opportunity when she could have accepted her long-awaited Messiah. Just seeing that DVD and what Israel has gone through in her history since 70 A.D. Just terrible. Have any of you ever been to the... Um, holocaust museum oh oh it is just it's just awful go through there and see the faces of so many people that went in you know were in the concentration camps and lost their lives and a million and a half children It just takes your breath away, and you can't leave there just being so moved in your spirit. And that's just under Hitler. Think of what she went through under Antiochus Epiphanes, and then you throw in Joseph Stalin, and all. I mean, they've been persecuted ever since their rejection of Christ. They've been being purged and persecuted, but they ain't seen nothing yet. You know, when the Antichrist comes, and they'll have to go through the seven years of tribulation and really be persecuted and purged all of that because they missed out on their 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 spiritual opportunity but that isn't anything compared to what people who who miss out on their spiritual opportunity individually will go through throughout all of eternity and weeping and gnashing of teeth in hell Mm. well anyway uh... so the issue of a person's salvation is not decided by one's familiarity with jesus christ many people Uh, Jesus tells us will claim that they were familiar with him, such as in, you know, Matthew seven, when they say, Lord, Lord, didn't we perform miracles and prophesy in your name? Others will say, you know, well, I was, I grew up in a quote unquote Christian church all my life. You know, my, my, my parents, my grandparents were always in a, a Protestant church or in a Catholic church or whatever. We've eaten and drunk in your presence, which we could say, well, they say, you know, I've taken communion or I've, I've participated in the mass. Um, I went to Sunday school for 50 years and um, never missed a Sunday or whatever. I volunteered for a vacation Bible school, all those sorts of things. None of those will matter. The only thing that gets anybody into heaven is true repentance and acceptance of Jesus Christ. I always take the word faith and use it as an acrostic. Faith, F-A-I-T-H. Faith is having the facts, F facts about jesus christ a lot of people have the facts about jesus christ you can talk to a lot of people in the mall and on the street and say do you know who jesus christ was oh yes he's the one that died on the cross and you know a lot of people even go yeah i know he died for me they have the facts and they agree with the facts that's the a they accept the facts they agree with the facts but that's where so many stop. Yeah, they think they're okay because they've got the facts about Jesus here and they accept them, but they don't get to the most important letter in the acrostic I. F A I. They have not internalized those facts. They haven't received Jesus Christ into their heart and life. They haven't moved the facts and the agreement of the facts from their head down eighteen inches to where? To their heart. You know, you've got to invite him in to as many as receive him. That's where so many churches stop. You know, they just talk about Christ and they don't tell people, except you be born again, you cannot enter into the kingdom of heaven. It's a tragedy. It's awful. So like me, I sat there for all those years, perfect attendance in Sunday school, and yet never heard that I needed to receive him. You need to internalize him. You need to move him from your head 18 inches down to your heart. And they never hear the true, full gospel, do they? They don't ever really trust in him. That's the T. And have the hope that we, you you and I do if we know for sure that we're saved. That's faith. Facts, agree, internalize, trust, hope. And it's a sure hope. Our anchor is in heaven. Anyway, so the idea of a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ his son opposed the popular concept among the Jews which was of course we've talked about this that they would inherit the kingdom of God simply because they were Jewish you know it was like a a blood thing because they'd been born in a Hebrew home because they were sons and daughters of Abraham and Isaac and and uh, Jacob But in order to teach that blood relationship meant nothing, Jesus said these words. He said, there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth when ye shall see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God and you yourselves thrust out. Doesn't matter if you had a blood relationship with them. The Jews honestly believed, and many people today honestly believe the same thing, that because they're a member of this church or that church or whatever, they honestly believe because they were born Jews, and if they tried to obey um, the laws to the best of their ability and weren't some kind of a murderer or terrible adulterer or prostitute, um, if they had been circumcised or if they were women and they had their baby boys circumcised, then they were automatically saved. It was the Gentiles, they believed, who would be excluded from the kingdom of heaven unless they converted, unless they, you know, were proselytized into Judaism and they became circumcised. Otherwise, they'd be excluded from the kingdom. So... Um, Adding to their remorse when they discover they missed their their time of opportunity to enter the kingdom will be the fact that they will see Gentiles and many Gentiles enter into the kingdom that they will be excluded from. You see, they thought the kingdom was all about them. Won't it shock so many of them one day to see... Many that came from the north, south, east, and west. That always speaks of a relationship to Israel. To the north and south and east and west of Israel is what? Gentiles. That many will sit. Many Gentiles. How many of you are Gentiles? I think everybody. We will be sitting with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom while many Jewish people will be excluded. It's a sad thing. We need to witness more. And, you know, not only are many Muslims coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's also more Jewish people. You know, the man who did the DVD, Joel Rosenberg, is Jewish. I think it's so exciting. To me, he's he's like maybe a foreshadowing of the 144,000 witnesses. They'll all be Jewish, and they'll be witnessing to the Gentiles, and they'll be like 144,000 Apostle Pauls. This man, Joel Rosenberg, has insight that God has given him, you know, regarding the word of God. It's exciting. I just got goosebumps. Well, Jesus's response to this speculative question, Lord, are there few that be saved, was in essence, stop your speculation and look to yourself and to your own spiritual condition. Do everything you can. Strive with all of your strength to enter in through the narrow gate that leads to eternal life while you can because there is a limit to your opportunity. One day, he said, the master of the house will rise up and he will close the door. Shut to the door. I like that because I always used to laugh at my husband, or well, my mother-in-law always said, shut to the door. I said, shut to the door. That's a southern expression if I ever... But you know what? It's biblical. There it is, guys, right there in the scripture. <laughs> All right, let's move on to another sad case. Herod Antipas, who missed his spiritual opportunity for this. We look at verses 31 to 33. It says, certain of the Pharisees saying unto him, Jesus, get thee out. Out of where? Out of Perea. Get thee out of Perea and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, go ye and tell that fox Behold, I cast out devils and do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. What's that a prediction of? His third day resurrection. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. There he was predicting not only his third day resurrection, but that he would perish In Jerusalem so he wasn't worried about Herod he knew where he would die it would be in the holy city of Jerusalem and he knew um, that it wouldn't be Herod putting him to death either well Jesus as I said was in Perea which was ruled along with Galilee Perea and Galilee were ruled by Herod Antipas he was um, the son, one of the sons of Herod the Great. Remember Herod the Great? He was the king of Israel, Israel at the time of Jesus' birth. He was the monster. Speaking of monsters who have persecuted Jews, he was the one who had all the boys, little boys in Bethlehem, two years of age and under, slaughtered in the Bethlehem Massacre. Well, this was his son. Now, he's, so Jesus is in an area under Herod's jurisdiction. So along come some Pharisees. They were everywhere. Everywhere he went, even though he's mostly in a Gentile area, there were Pharisees there. Now, I don't know the motive of these particular Pharisees. Some Bible commentators say that these were good Pharisees. That they were genuinely trying to warn Jesus to get out because Herod was after him. Herod wanted to do away with him. And this may well be. I tend more toward that because otherwise why would they tell him? Now some say that the Pharisees told him to leave Perea because they wanted to force him back into Jerusalem where he could be captured and killed. And that could be too. But let's give them the benefit of the doubt and say that these were good Pharisees. All right, and they just told Jesus of one thing we do know is that the threat was real. Herod was indeed trying he, he wanted he wanted to get um, Jesus, and we know that because of his um, reply. He said, "Tell that old fox, I love that." <laughs> Jesus sure does use a lot of animals to describe people, doesn't he? But a fox. Now, foxes were not appreciated at all by the Jews. They thought of foxes as very... And they didn't like Herod, did they? Well, other than the sect of the Herodians. But the other Jews did not like the Herod dynasty because they were cunning, sneaky. You know, fox. a fox does its its hunting at night under cover of darkness and they're crafty. So they the Jews didn't like foxes. Now, do foxes... Attack sheep? Yeah, I guess they would. So foxes are the enemy, but he's, you tell that old fox. Now, do you remember that there was a time in Herod Antipas's life when he had an open door of opportunity to listen to a very godly prophet of God? Who was that prophet? John the Baptist. Now, Herod actually really liked John the Baptist. Even though Herod had thrown him into prison, because he spoke out too much about his uh, Herod's adulterous relationship with his brother's wife. You know, John just wouldn't be quiet about that, so he had to throw him in in prison, probably because his wife nagged him to death, get rid of him. Um, So he put him in a prison. But remember in Mark 6 it told us that Herod used to go down into the prison and talk with John for hours at a time. He really enjoyed listening to John and he he acknowledged that John was a godly and just person. And it even told us that he, he did many of the things John told him to do. So there was a point in his life when he had an open door of opportunity. Sadly, um, he allowed the lust of his flesh and his reputation before his peers to get in the way, and um, he wound up having John the Baptist beheaded. And he was exceeding sorry about that, we are told. He didn't really want to kill him, but he was more concerned about his own reputation. So um, so in that, we saw his door of opportunity to be beginning to close a little bit, you know. And then when Herod first began to hear reports about Jesus, remember what his reaction was? His conscience was still at work because he feared Jesus because he thought that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead however um, the door of his opportunity began to close because the next time we hear about this tetrarch of Galilee we find he he was very anxious to meet Jesus but it wasn't because he was interested in hearing his message you know he had been interested at one time in the message of John but now when he wants to see or when he did want to see Jesus it was only to see a miracle So he's regressing. You know, he used to like to hear spiritual things. Now all he wants to do is see a miracle. You know, by the time, and now we find out that he's after Jesus to kill him. Maybe he wanted to see him do a miracle and then he would kill him, I don't know. But when he finally, for the first time, meets the Lord Jesus face to face, it's really sad. His conscience had been totally seared and we know that because Jesus won't speak one word to him. He won't utter one word to him. Now, Jesus stood before Pilate and had a conversation with him. But when he stood before Herod, not one word. He knew it was at that point in time. Too late for Herod. He had missed his time of spiritual opportunity and his conscience was totally seared. That's a sad, sad place to be. All right, so um, let's see where I want to... How much time have I got? I probably... I probably, what? I have 10 minutes? I have 10 minutes. Okay, his reply, the Lord's reply in verses 32 and 33 indicates that he wasn't concerned at all about Herod's threat. As I said before, you know, he knew he was on a divine timetable. And so he wasn't afraid for several reasons. One is because he is king of kings and lord of lords. He is creator God, and he is not going to be afraid of some puny little tetrarch. Right? Right? course he's not he's not afraid of any man fear of man brings a snare and that would have been sin if he was afraid so he wasn't afraid of herod he wouldn't have called him a fox he knew that would get back to him and he didn't leave perea at that time you know he's slowly but steadily working and and, and he knew he was going to die at the passover that's you know when he was scheduled to die because he was the passover lamb so he wasn't worried about herod and uh he, he also, as I said before, he knew that the place he was going to die was outside of Jerusalem. It wasn't going to be in Perea. So he called him a, he called him a fox. And um, then he predicted his third day resurrection. Now let's move. Let's just move real quickly to this very, very sad lament that the Lord gave to Jerusalem. And we're going to see this almost an identical lament in the, the um, Olivet Discourse when Jesus departs um, out of the city of Jerusalem and goes up to the Mount of Olives and he's standing there and he looks over the city and he says the same thing. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Here... He is not looking at the city, but he'd just been thinking about the city. You know, when he said that, For it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. So while he's in Perea, he's thinking of Jerusalem, and he gives this lament. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets and stonest them that are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, And ye would not. That is such a strong proof right there that man has free choice, human responsibility, isn't it? It's not ye could not because I didn't elect you to receive me. It's ye would not. You know, yes, the Bible teaches divine election, but it also teaches human responsibility, doesn't it? They wouldn't accept him. It was a willful thing. And he says, Behold, your house is left unto you desolate, and verily I say unto you, ye shall not see me until the time come when ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. This lamentation by the Lord Jesus over the sad future, sad, tragic, awful future of Israel and, and his prophetic statements about both her desolation and her eventual belief at the time of his second coming are also found over in Matthew at the very end, as I just said, of his life. Um, so apparently he gives this lament, well, we know, twice during his earthly ministry. Now, I know about chickens because <laughs> I married a foul person. Um F-O-W-L and F-O-U-L. My husband has always loved fowl. I guess it's because his mother was a bird watcher and she loved birds so much. But we've always had chickens. It's just lately we've run out of chickens. We only have a few peacocks left. <laughs> but I, for my whole married life, I've observed chickens. And uh, the mother chicken will take, of course, her little biddies and put them under the protective care of her wings at two, ver- at two times. One time is when she sees that they're in danger. Like, for example, a black snake gets into the cage and she sees the black snake and she'll quick, you know, rustle her feathers and gather all her little bitties under her protecting wings to protect those bitties from the big old black snake. Another time she does that is when darkness is coming. You know, when the sun is going down and they need to stay warm and protected under her wings. Jesus saw not only the impending danger ahead for Israel, when she, rejected, when she would reject him. He saw Titus Vespasian coming because, of course, he orchestrated all of that. And he knew what would happen to her. He saw the danger, and he wanted to have her under his protective wings. But she would not, would she? She's like, I've seen biddies that they just get out, you know, and they won't come back to Mama, and the big old black snake gets them. They just would not. They will not. The other thing he saw ahead of time was not only her impending danger, but he saw the coming darkness. He had told her he was the light of the world, and the light was only going to be with her a little while longer, and then he was going to depart, and she would be in darkness. And she has been in darkness for a long time. But then, good news, I mean, he says your house is going to be left desolate. We saw in that DVD, didn't we? Ever since 70 A.D., she hasn't had a temple. Her house has been left desolate Isn't it incredible that there's a Muslim mosque where the temple should be? It's a fulfillment of prophecy. But good news is that she will see him again. When she's finally been purged and she's finally ready to accept him, she'll see him again. He says, uh, you will not see me again until the time come when ye shall say, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. You know, back when he had said the first shall be last and the last shall be first, that's what's going to happen. His plan was always to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. Well, because the first rejected him, the first have been the Gentiles. The first, you know, the church is made up of Gentiles. The f- So the, the last will be first and the first, the Jews, will be last. They'll be the last ones to accept him because they won't accept him until the end of the tribulation When he appears, you know, ends the battle of Armageddon and she looks upon him whom she has pierced and she shall mourn for him as an only son, she will finally recognize her Messiah. The first, the Jews, will be the last to accept him. So he's giving a lot of predictions here. But anyway, um, I guess we're, we're finished with the lesson and we're right on time. I did it twice in a row. did it yesterday, too. Great. We're off to a great beginning. (laughs) And I told the ladies yesterday, I promise you it won't continue. (laughs) All right, let's pray. Father, we pray that the truths that we have realized in this study of your word would sink down into every heart and bear fruit in our lives. May we understand thoroughly that that, um, if there be any among us who should die in their sins and go to an eternal hell where they are separated from you, that their punishment is solely on their own heads. They they have heard the truth and they have no one to blame but themselves. They cannot lay the blame on you, Father, nor on your Son, nor on your Holy Spirit, because we have learned that all three members of the Godhead have striven so much for so many years, been so long-suffering to... Um, to knock at our heart's door, the hearts of man, to get them to accept you. And sadly, we don't want anyone here to one day be knocking and it be too late, that the door be closed. So I pray, Lord, if anyone has that opportunity today to accept you into her heart, to know for all of eternity that she truly is going to enter into the kingdom of heaven that she wouldn't let this opportunity pass, that she would take care of that matter today and know that she will not come into condemnation. Thank, thank you for this time together this morning. I pray that you will bless each woman this week as she gets into the scripture herself and does her homework questions, that you will um, speak to her individually. And um, Lord, use us as your lights is the salt of the earth until we assemble back together next Tuesday. For we pray, Jesus, in your blessed holy name. Amen.